0: Listener Production. Dr. David Hamilton is one of the world's great teachers, educating people on the placebo effect, the mind-body connection and the science of kindness. His wise words translate the complicated to make it easily palpable. David says, Kindness brings people together. It dissolves disagreement and hatred and mends broken hearts. In this honest conversation, we talk about the magic power of the mind, the darkness of depression, and how being kind can transform your life.
1: When you be kind, because of how that makes you feel, your brain and your body, your heart, generates this hormone that actually protects your heart and it protects your arteries. It causes the walls of the arteries to soften. So the heart no longer has to work quite as hard to get the blood through, but it's a physical effect on the arteries caused by being kind.
0: I'm Sarah Grimberg, and this is A Life of Greatness. Working as a podcast and radio producer, I have been fortunate enough to cross paths with many intriguing people who have had a profound impact on me. In this series, I share stories and experiences from the people who have brought inspiration to my life, and hopefully yours too. Dr David Hamilton is a best-selling author. Some of his books include I Heart Me, How Your Mind Can Heal Your Body, and The Five Side Effects of Kindness. He grew up in a small village in central Scotland. His mum looked after the elderly and his dad was a coal miner. David uses science to inspire, fusing together the mind, body and spirit. I started by asking David, how did his mum's postpartum depression shape who he is today?
1: I've got three sisters and my mum developed postpartum depression after my youngest sister was born. So I was about maybe six or seven years old. So when I was a child, I was very aware that my mum wasn't well, although I didn't really understand exactly what that meant and what way I remember having such compassion like I just wanted to help my mum and what got me into my present subject of the mind-body connection was I was in the school library when I was about 11 years old and this might sound really corny right but a book fell off the shelf and it landed flat and it was called The Magic Power of Your Mind by a gentleman called Walter Germain and I immediately had an intuition that that would help my mum so I just took the book and put it in my bag. I didn't know as an 11-year-old child that you're actually supposed to join a library and borrow books. <laughs> <laughs> so, so my mum still has it, believe it or not. I think that's, that's so what, 37 years overdue or something. But, you know, I gave it to my mum. Now, it didn't cure depression in a day. But what it did is it, it gave her some tools and strategies that helped her through some of the more difficult days. It gave her kind of ways to navigate a course through the difficult days. So when I was a child and a teenager, I would regularly would hear my mum doing affirmations like, I can do it, mind over matter, it's all in the mind. And she was saying these positive affirmations that she learned from the book, really to help her to get through the difficult days. So I grew up hearing positive affirmations, so like a positive mindset and believing and understanding the state of your mind could actually help. Your overall health and well-being. So later after my PhD, I was working as a scientist in the pharmaceutical industry. I was immensely drawn to the placebo effect. You know, contrary to all of my colleagues who are more focused on building drug molecules, which is what I was doing at the time. But my focus intensely became the placebo effect because I had heard so much about the mind-body connection from my mum. It was like, wow, this is so interesting.
0: That's amazing. And I mean, I know that you've done a lot of research in this area, but they do say that how you grow up affects who you are as an adult. And obviously that can all be changed. So what happened when you were working in the pharmaceutical industry that really got you into that wanting to know more about the placebo effects? Like what did you see?
1: Yeah, you know, I had quite a broad job. I was trained as what's called an organic chemist. An organic chemist is a bit like an adult who who does what children do when they're building objects out of Lego bricks. You know, so children take yeah. Lego bricks of different colours, shapes and sizes, and they assemble different shapes of objects. So an organic chemist does exactly the same, but instead of using Lego bricks, we use atoms. So I would take carbons and hydrogens, etc., And the shapes that an organic chemist would assemble would be pharmaceutical drugs. And so I got to see some of the clinical side of things as well. And I started to learn about the sheer numbers of people who were improving on drug trials, receiving placebos, you know, the sugar pill. So in my spare time, I started to research that. So I would go down to the library and I'd look online and I'd look at the medical journals and pull together a lot of data. So I worked predominantly in cardiovascular medicine, but also quite a lot in cancer. And one of the biggest cholesterol-lowering drugs at the time, this was like a precursor to the modern-day statins, and it had a five-year survival rate of 80% for heart patients. But the placebo had a five-year survival rate of 79.1. Oh, my gosh. 0.9% of a difference. Sometimes when there's a very small gap between a drug and a placebo, it doesn't mean necessarily that the drug doesn't work. Drugs are routinely written off for that reason, that they say the drug doesn't work because there's nothing between the drug and placebo. But that isn't really necessarily always the case. Sometimes tells us the person's mind is generating its own biochemistry to such a degree that it's almost doing the same job as the drug. The person's mind is so powerful. It's exerting quite a considerable effect by fiddling about with their own brain chemistry. And I found that so intriguing time and time again that after four years in the pharmaceutical industry, I wanted to Really research and educate people in the different ways that we can harness our mind and emotions for to improve our health.
0: How does it work? What does the mind do to allow someone to think what I'm taking is going to make me well?
1: Yeah, well, I'll give you a very simple example that's been really well studied. If a person is given a placebo for pain and you take a brain scan or you take some other analysis of the brain, then... The person's brain actually produces a natural version of morphine. And it's the natural version of morphine that provides a painkilling effect when a person receives a placebo but gets pain relief. So when I started asking questions and chatting about the mind and the placebo effect, my colleagues would always dismiss it and say, oh, it's just the placebo effect. But that's completely not true because it turns out that when you believe that you're receiving a real drug, your brain manufactures its own natural chemistry that carry out the job that you're expecting the drug to do. If one person's given, say, morphine and another person's given placebo, then the person who receives placebo, their brain will produce its own morphine to deliver about the same pain-killing effect.
0: And that's obviously probably better for you, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not just all in the mind.
1: What you think and what you imagine and what you believe literally, literally physically changes the brain, and the brain changes in response to what you're thinking.
0: Can you give us examples of that?
1: Yeah, well, I have a friend actually several years ago. He had a very serious autoimmune disease called myasthenia gravis. And you know, an autoimmune condition, it's, you know, things like Diabetes 1, rheumatoid arthritis, a lupus, different things like that, where the immune system, it seems to be somehow recognising the body as something alien. And he came along to one of my speaking events and we constructed a little visualisation. The way he understood the condition was that his immune system was attacking a little very, very important chemical in the brain. Let's say it had to get from A to B, so from one place to another place. And in his imagination, the way he understood the disease is that the immune system would prevent it getting there. So he would imagine like a piranha fish that was swimming up and gobbling this little chemical each time it was trying to get from one place to the next. And that was leading to all these really serious symptoms. So in his imagination, he did this every single day for like, you know, 15 minutes, half an hour. He would imagine he was camped out with a pop gun And in his imagination, every time he saw his immune system, i.e. a piranha fish of the immune system, about to eat this little chemical, he would shoot a cork at it and hit it on the bum. And the little piranha would get distracted. It would go, oh, what was that? And as it got distracted, the little chemical would be able to get to where it wanted to go to. And he did this hundreds and hundreds of times and completely recovered. Now, just to put into perspective, his consultant actually said, and I quote, that you are the only person I have ever heard of in the world who has completely recovered from myasthenia gravis. That's amazing. And what he was doing really was this visualization where he was preventing in his imagination that little chemical being blocked from getting from one place to the next.
0: So, you know, I've heard so many studies of this kind of stuff being done. Why is it not used more mainstream?
1: I think maybe these kind of things can sound so fantastical and unbelievable that it doesn't sound possible. I mean, for example, I did a few lectures now for the NHS in the UK, and sometimes when I broach this kind of subject, traditionally what I'll talk about to the NHS is the science of kindness and compassion and how that has a physically beneficial effect. But when I move more into the mind-body connection thing, you can see people shifting in their seats, and it's only because you're not used to hearing it. And if you go and investigate the data, you see it's factually correct. There's been many, many clinical studies now. Let's say in a typical study, everyone who's had a stroke gets a six-week course in physical therapy. But half of the patients... Half of them, in addition to receiving their physiotherapy, they also do about an hour, maybe three or four times a week of visualisation, where what they have to do is they have to visualise, they have to imagine moving their impaired limbs. So let's say, for example, a person who's had a stroke, they have impairment on the right side. So in their visualisation, they're asked to imagine reaching for a glass of water, picking it up and taking a drink. Another thing they would be asked to do is to imagine reaching for a pen and writing a sentence, placing the pen back down and putting their hand by their side. Then they would do it repetitively. So again, they would imagine reaching for the pen taking it up, writing a sentence, placing the pen down and returning their hand by the side. So they do repetitive movements that they're familiar with, but they're imagining doing them with their impaired limb. And every single one of these clinical studies show that people who do the visualisation in addition to physiotherapy recover much more of their movement and much faster. Than the people who just do physiotherapy alone. So I think the weight of these clinical studies, coupled with some of the placebo studies, are beginning to bring the whole subject into mainstream. It's not that the stuff isn't factually true, it's just sometimes things can take a little bit of time before they get into the mainstream.
0: And tell me, you have suffered depression and anxiety in your life. What happened that then catapulted you into obviously suffering the depression, anxiety and then getting you to where you are now?
1: The first time I struggled with depression, I was working in the pharmaceutical industry and it was really just opening up and talking to my mum. I had what you call smiling depression, where you just smile and you pretend to everyone that you're okay but you're not really. And after months, maybe weeks, my mum kept calling me on the phone and saying, I think there's something wrong. Are you sure you're okay? And finally, I Mother's admitted instinct. to her, Absolutely. And and finally, I broke down on tears on the phone and said, yeah, I was feeling really low and depressed. And she said, right, okay, you're coming home now. And for me, the recovery from depression began on the day that I allowed my mum to care, which is, opening up and not bottling up my feelings inside by finally admitting to someone that this is how I was feeling and at the same time then allowing my mum to care. So that was a fantastic catalyst for me.
0: I mean, knowing what you do now, why do you think that that depression happened?
1: There's different triggers for depression for different people. Now, looking back with hindsight, I'm very sure I know what my trigger was. And it was a deep growing dissatisfaction with my life Mm. and feeling like I was kind of stuck. I was very successful in science in the pharmaceutical industry. I was earning a lot of money for my age and I was moving up the ladder really quickly. I'd been promoted up and across the company, but it wasn't what I was supposed to do. I knew in my heart that what I do now is what I'm supposed to do. I knew that I was supposed to write books and teach and, and speak. And just feeling that there was such a gap between what I was presently doing and what I believed in my heart I was supposed to be doing. And I think looking back with hindsight, I would say that is the cause. Towards the end of my improvement, I actually made a clear decision that I was going to leave the pharmaceutical industry and go out on my own. And everything changed from that point. So I think it was for me that growing feeling that my life was going in that direction, but it needed to go in another direction. Now, depression for different people can happen for different reasons. That doesn't mean that's how it is for everyone, but that certainly, I think, is what it was for me at that time in my life.
0: Then you obviously came into studying a lot of research to do with love and kindness and how that obviously has a lot of effects on the brain and can actually change you as a person. Can you explain how that's done?
1: So one of my favorite areas of research is the science of how kindness and compassion has a physical effect. For example, it's almost the opposite of stress. Physiologically speaking, the opposite of stress is the physical conditions created by a feeling of kindness. Because for example, when you feel stressed, it's not a situation itself that generates the physical conditions of stress in the body. So when I say the physical conditions, you know, most people have heard of adrenaline and cortisol. So these are your stress hormones. But the stress hormones get created because of how you feel. It's not the situation itself. I mean, for example, two people could be sharing a car ride together and they get stuck in traffic and one of them feels stressed because they're not going to get to an appointment on time and the other one feels quite relaxed because there's nothing they can do about the situation. So one person will have high levels of stress hormones and the other person will have none. So it's not the situation that's causing the stress hormones in the body, it's how the person feels about it. So in other words, it's feelings of stress that generate stress hormones that create physical conditions of stress in the body. The reason I'm saying that is because when you be kind to someone and you really mean it, and it's important that you mean it, it generates a feeling that psychologists now refer to as elevation. And it's a feeling of kind of warmth or connection or or you know generosity or gratitude or expansion. It's any one of a number of nice feelings that you might associate with kindness. And elevation, what that does, instead of producing stress hormones, it produces what I call the kindness hormone, which is also called the love drug, the cuddle chemical, the the hug drug, there's a number of different names for it, and it's the hormone oxytocin. Which is well known as a reproductive hormone and it plays a role in breastfeeding, but it's also a very, very important cardiovascular hormone. Basically, what it does is it protects the heart and it protects the arteries. So, put this into perspective when you be kind, because of how that makes you feel, your brain and your body, your heart generates this hormone that actually protects your heart and it protects your arteries. It actually parks on the lining of the arteries, it causes the walls of the arteries to soften. And as they soften, the arteries expand in size, so the heart no longer has to work quite as hard to get the blood through. But it's a physical effect on the arteries caused by being kind because of how that makes you feel, just like there's a physical effect on the heart and the arteries caused by stress. So this is what I mean by kindness is physiologically the opposite
0: of stress. You also talk a lot about the science of self-esteem. How does that work?
1: Yeah, the science of self-esteem. My research into this began on the day I had an anxiety attack at the side of the stage. So I was about to go on stage to about a thousand people to give a talk right after the late Dr. Wayne Dyer. And, you know, the anxiety attack wasn't really to do with the fact that I was nervous about speaking because I'd given plenty of talks in the past. The anxiety attack came from a feeling of such low self-worth. It was almost like there was a little voice inside me that was saying, you know, who do you think you are? You're from that little village in Banknock. You know, you're rubbish. You're nothing. And I actually had a flashback, a memory of being at, at school when I was a six or seven-year-old child and the teacher had reprimanded me for not bringing money in for a school trip. All the other kids had, but I didn't bring it in because my mum and dad were really poor. I heard my mum crying the night before over money. So I didn't ask her for the money because I didn't know the value of money. And she set me apart from the class. She said to me, if David Hamilton isn't good enough to bring his money in, everyone else can go on the school trip and David Hamilton can wait here until we get back. And she made me stand in the corner, punished me. All the other kids got given a yellow badge. And oh, it, I can't remember. My
0: heart's about to break. Yeah, That's and, and so I can't sad. remember the
1: details. Yeah, it was like a yellow badge. It was like a smiley face or a sunflower or a sun. And, you know, the school trip, I wasn't upset about not going in the school trip because I'd never been in one. I didn't know what a school trip was. But the badge, I was devastated. Mm. What my six-year-old child brain picked up at that time was everyone else in the class is special except for me. And somehow that kind of idea got in my head that everyone is special except for me. And so many times throughout my childhood, teenage and adult years, I felt this drive that I needed to prove myself to be as good as everyone else. And now wind the clock forward, and here I am in my mid-40s standing at the side of the stage, and Wayne Dyer's coming off to a standing ovation. And I'm remembering that. (laughs) And so I had the same feeling. And it was almost like Wayne Dyer and all the other speakers had a yellow badge, and I didn't. So the anxiety attack wasn't because I was nervous about speaking. It was because it was such a deep feeling of lacking of self-worth that I truly believed that I had nothing of any value to offer. And I almost cried. That's the day that I decided that I had to do something about this growing feeling of low self-worth that I was becoming very conscious of how I was feeling now because it was expressing itself in a number of different areas of my life.
0: So how does someone that might be in the same situation or a similar situation suffering from anxiety do and practice what you have taught yourself?
1: I was lucky here that I knew a lot about neuroscience and the mind-body connection, often I'll talk about how the state of your mind can cause a physical effect in the body. But to the same degree, what you do with your physical body can also feed back into the brain and affect how you feel. If you learn, teach yourself to maybe stand in a way or walk in a way that says, I have an inner sense of worthiness and value, or you know, I love myself just as I am. Anything positive like that, that makes a statement of your own worth, But wear it on your body, you know, so hold your shoulders the way that you would want to hold your shoulders. Hold your face, your head up high and practice that. Because if you practice a movement repetitively, you wire it into the circuits of the brain. A professor called Alvaro Pascal León got volunteers to play five notes on a piano repetitively for two hours on five consecutive days. And he found that the region of the brain connected to the finger muscles had grown like a muscle by a factor of, you know, 30 to 40 times. So I knew about that research. So what I did relentlessly throughout the day, and I mean relentlessly, as often as I could remember to, I would correct my posture and literally wear on my body a posture that's saying I have an inner sense of worthiness and value. When you adjust muscles to do with posture that affect how you feel, then you also wire the brain in the same way. But as well as wiring the brain in the same way, you're also affecting in a more seemingly permanent way how you feel about yourself. So somewhere about you know six weeks-ish, give or take a few weeks, I had the tipping point where I literally felt completely different from how I'd ever felt in my life before. And it was like an alien feeling that I'd never really had before. And I realised it was the repetition of adjusting my postural muscles and literally wiring into my brain a different feeling about myself. So that for me was bordering on life-changing the power that says I have an inner sense of worthiness and value. That was probably the most important thing I ever learned in my self-love project.
0: That's amazing. David, yeah. what do you think your life's purpose is?
1: You know, I cover quite a lot of bases in my books. So I've written obviously a book called I Heart Me on the science of self-esteem. I've written a couple of books on kindness. I've written a few books on the mind-body connection. I've even written more metaphysical books. And the single thread through all of that stuff is I think my purpose is as a translator. In the same way that maybe a language translator maybe translates from, you know, French into English or German into, you know, Spanish or something. I kind of feel that my purpose is to translate science that's helpful to people into everyday ordinary language that people at my mum and dad can read and understand and then use that knowledge to improve their life, to improve their health. You don't have to be qualified to read any of my books. I literally break it down into really simple elements, stories, simple explanations of how things work. But I also translate the other way in explaining to maybe sceptical people in the mainstream or even scientists that there's something really valid in all of
0: this stuff. What do you think the purpose of life is?
1: I've got a few answers to that. I would say a main purpose of life is to learn and understand who you and who we really are. You know, to come to maybe a spiritual understanding of that which you are. It might be that the answer to that question is that that which you are is not inside your skull. It's not a product of brain chemistry, but that which you are is something that transcends space and time. But I would say another purpose of life is to do whatever you do with love and kindness. The challenge that always expands us is how can I meet this situation? With love and kindness, as maybe a higher, more expanded version of myself. So maybe then a purpose is to evolve in the process of showing love and kindness in a variety of situations. Do you pray? Yes, but perhaps not in the same way that a lot of people pray. I don't necessarily pray to a person with a beard and a white cloud. But I certainly believe that there's something that's much grander than we are and maybe we're part of that something. And so I pray to a God, but not the same classic God that you might think of as the white beard kind of thing, but more of a consciousness that is spiritual and it's all one part of the same thing. And maybe its deepest essence is unity, togetherness, love and compassion. So that's
0: what I pray to. Do you look back at your life with any regrets? If you'd
1: asked me that question a year ago, then probably I would have, but I've done so much work on my self-esteem, my self-worth that that no, I don't anymore. And I really honour the fact that I've needed to have been the person I've been in the past to shape me into the person I am now that enables me to be the person I'm becoming.
0: What is a life of greatness to you? A life of greatness is a life where we
1: can just be a good person regardless of what line of work you're in just be a good person that's greatness in my book
0: David Hamilton thank you for all the beautiful work you've done and for being such a ray of light in this world oh thank you that's very kind of you
1: to say that I've thoroughly enjoyed our conversation
0: if you've enjoyed this episode, then I'd love you to join my community on Instagram at Sarah Grimberg where we post videos and behind-the-scenes footage of each recording. You can also join my private Facebook group, Live Life Greatly, where we discuss the content in this episode and many more, as well as give advice and tips on how to live a life of love and meaning. To purchase my ebook Finding Greatness head to saragrimberg.com and if you love what you heard then we'd love you to hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app and leave a 5-star review it will help us share this wisdom with others A life of greatnesses executive producer is me Sarah Grimberg audio producers Matt Nicolich and Darcy Thompson special thanks to Grant Tothill for bringing this dream to life For more episodes, search a Life of Greatness podcast, download the new Listener app now and listen for free. Listener.